The management of sepsis. Is there anything new? Hmm. Okay, so hi, we are back at the NTI 2019. Uh, we're heading towards the end of the conference now, and I've been joined by Mike Ackerman and Tom. I'm sorry, Tom, how would I pronounce your surname? Aarons. Aarons. Okay, yep. Tom Aarons. I beg your pardon. Now, Mike and Tom have both uh, presented on sepsis, uh, kind of an update on sepsis, really. Um, sepsis is all done, guys, isn't it, really? We, we know what we're doing. We know what's going on. We, we, we've sorted it. What, what's, what's the new issues in sepsis <laughs> that we need to be concerned about? We haven't ever fixed it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so even though we talk about updates, the... Um, Quite honestly, there's not there's no real updates. Okay, and that's the problem. Um, Mike and I talk about we have looked at things maybe a different angle, like give vasopressors earlier, but there's not really data to say we should change our practice. Okay, you know, there's a study with vitamin C and thiamine and steroids. That'll be interesting to see if it works. Those of us who've been in sepsis for 30 years. Are skeptical mm -hmm. because nothing works, mm -hmm. and that's the problem. <laughs> Mike and I joke we have a we have a slide from 1992, and the treatments they're the same, right? And so what's happened is really we've become mandated to do things in a certain time frame. That's new, not new this year, new this century. <laughs> but when you look at that, it's you go it's not a lot of progress. Um, so really the key is identification and do not let infection start. That's the key. Okay. So if we just take a few steps back, just for anyone who's listening, what is sepsis? What's the difference between being septic and being unwell? Well, um, <clears throat> sepsis is the body's response to an infection. And the infection can be a, a variety of origins could be bacterial viral fungal most commonly it's bacterial but the common misconception is that sepsis is an infection and what sepsis really is is our own immune system inflammatory immune system that gets turned on and gets turned up and so when we talk about sepsis it's it's that process that inflammatory process that gets turned on in response to the body's fighting of the infection. Mm -hmm. And our goal really in the treatment of sepsis is to support the organ systems, treat the infection when we know what it is, and allow the body time to recover and heal so the inflammatory immune response gets turned down. And, but that, that is a common misconception that sepsis is the infection. Patients don't die from the infection. Patients die from sepsis, which is the body's response to the infection. Okay. So the the definition of sepsis and the definition of the stages of sepsis has changed, hasn't it, over the last few years? You know, we've had things like septic shock and severe sepsis. Um, is there anything new there for us to be aware of now? Well, the, the skeptics will say they're just playing with words. Yeah. Nothing's changed from sepsis perspective. Uh, so, for example, Mike and I do a, a skit on this. 
where if you use the older criteria of SIRS with two or more SIRS criteria and um, you know to identify sepsis plus infection that screens much better yeah when they went to the SEP3 guidelines very very good you know clinicians came up with those but they were trying to align better that sepsis is a dangerous condition and they wanted to give a guideline that would reflect that yeah so the sep3 guidelines using like q sofa scores uh, or you know rapid rest rate hypotension change in level of conscious or altered mental status but if we're a nurse and i'm screening if i'm waiting for those criteria patients already in severe sepsis yeah and so we don't want you to give up those early screening tools from a nursing perspective and if I was on that committee that came up with it, I would have said, be careful what you're doing. Yeah. Because now you're going to let people identify it more accurately, sepsis. Yeah. But late. Late, yeah. And so that's really the key thing. And um, then again, we talk about the sensitivity and specificity of the different measures. So the SEP3 guideline is not that it's wrong. It just isn't a screening tool. And the authors will tell you that. And the research is borne out. Mike and I talked about that in 2017. We said, listen, this new guideline is it's accurate, but it's not a good screening tool. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, it's been abbreviated down to the QSOFA, hasn't it? But the original tool, the SOFA scoring tool, is quite an extensive absolutely. Uh, tool, isn't yeah. it? You know, But really, that extensive tool probably is designed really for to help the research pathway, isn't it? You know, yeah. to, to help guide that rather than guide our treatment. It's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the QSOFA score is very accurate at predicting mortality rates. Yeah. And if that's your goal, fine. But, but we're at the bedside. We want to make sure that staff nurse, you know, a nights picks up somebody who's at risk. Okay. And, and originally, um, you know, when we moved from SEP1 to SEP2, some of the driving force behind that was to get better definitions so that when we did our research we could compare apples to apples yeah because you'd have one study that defined things one way and you've had another study that defines things another way what step two did is really solidified some of those definitions but when we went to step three like tom said we we moved away from well the search criteria still are still there but the other thing that I think the authors of that wanted to make sure of is that we had a tool that could be applied universally across the globe. Yeah. And QSOFA can be. Yeah. Because everybody can count respiratory rate and mental status. So there was a lot of things that were driving it. But what was what was kind of dangerous about that was some of the messes that was out there was start to use QSOFA to screen. Yeah. And that and that would be dangerous because we would miss people that had sepsis because it was uh, too sensitive. Okay, so so for the bedside nurse now, um, she presented with a patient that is unwell. What are we telling them? How are they deciding that the patient is heading towards sepsis? But that's a good point. Mike alluded to it. The we would be telling the bedside nurse to look for SERS criteria, but it also if you you see a change in mentation, mm -hmm. that's a key sign if it occurs after an infection okay and that's the key um, you know people joke that you can get two signs of SIRS by walking up a flight of stairs 
but you don't have an infection. Yeah. And that's why the SERS criteria still have, have value. Um, you know, the big thing is, is we need to keep doing research on biomarkers. Yeah. And, but even then, we don't even know what sepsis it really is. No, so, but to the bed night, bedside nurse, the message is clear. And we've, we've given this message for over a decade. Um, it's, it's early recognition and kind of trust your gut. Yeah. And if you have a presumed or probable source of infection and your patient's tachycardic, they, they, they get their febrile, um, act on it because we now know with very good data that time is survival. Yeah. So the earlier we can get the antibiotics in and get, get things moving, <clears throat> the better the survival. So that's the message to the bedside nurse that it's just this constant vigilance to, to assess and, um, trust your gut and, um, and, and, and get the right level of care to that patient when, when it's needed. And we talked about this yesterday in our session, you know, we, we've done most of our education in critical care, Yeah. but that's not where sepsis starts. No, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, the emergency room nurses, med surge, nursing home, that those are the people that need to hear this message. Cause that, by the time we get to the the patient gets the IC, we already have a diagnosis pretty much. Sure, they're not getting septic typically in the ICU, so we still have a we still have some work to do with educating people outside the ICU and getting this message about yeah. constant vigilance because you don't need anything in the ICU to to assess and and do a good job at, at surveillance. That we have the same tools on the floor in the nursing home. It, it, there's nothing special about the ICU. So we need to get that message out to other people. Sure. Okay. Um, so we've, we've talked about recognizing sepsis um, and we've talked about um, the definitions of sepsis um, and, and it sounds like really nothing's changed. Um, what, if anything, has or is going to change, do you think, as far as treatment in that golden hour is concerned because one of the biggest debates and it's still ongoing is the 30 mils per kilo isn't it you know yeah. it, it's it's what you should give your patient and sometimes it's just not appropriate um, sometimes it's it's done well and sometimes it's done very badly it, it, are things going to change with that or are we on the right lines we just need people to do it properly that's a good question. The 30 mils per kilo is clearly not not right. We are just trying to make sure people don't get under resuscitated. Yeah. And like Mike and I say, that's our fault because we weren't given enough fluid and so we were seeing worse outcomes. Now, to that point, there's a, a good study that comes out of the New York data that shows the key treatment is antibiotics. Yeah. That's what makes a difference. Yeah. Fluid resuscitation, less so. Uh, not that you shouldn't do it. It's just that's not the real measure that makes a difference. But what we talk about is use a measure that's more accurate. So I talk a lot on stroke volume optimization. Uh, not 30 mils per kilo, stroke volume optimization. In other words, you give fluid until the person's stroke volume is adequately been, been restored. That makes more sense than just giving everybody 30 mils per kilo because if you if they're really hypovolemic, you can restore the stroke volume and you'll you'll be better. And and how is the bedside nurse assessing 
the stroke volume oh, optimization? That's a great question. All they need is the right technology. Yeah. And we still are lagging behind that. There are several technologies that can measure stroke volume, and we don't use those often enough. I prefer ultrasound techniques, uh, but a lot of you know people are using bioimpedance, bioreactance, uh, arterial pulse contour, and not that those are wrong. They're just not as accurate as ultrasound. I just had a discussion with Eugene Mondor. I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you know him. And we've just been talking about that very issue because we were talking about hemodynamic monitoring. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you can keep your cardiac output study monitor for me. I want an echo machine um, <laughs> because it tells me so much more. Yeah. Yeah. And if I really need to, I can do my cardiac output studies from my echo machine. That, that's right. Um, and it's actually, we, I like to use some of the flow monitors for ultrasound, but the echo should be adapted to do, give the bedside clinician flow yeah. numbers. Yeah. What's the stroke volume? What's the cardiac output? Yeah. Uh, but no, the echo, we talk about if, if you had that, you've got most what you need. And yeah. if we use that right, the 30 mils per kilo wouldn't come up. Yeah. Well, and it's not even, there, bedside nurses are using echo in, in Europe. Yeah. Um, I think it was a, it might have been an Italian study. Um, so this isn't like the future. This is now. Yeah. And with the application of artificial intelligence, the same as w- there's a there's a company that digitizes heart sounds. Yeah. And then through AI with 99.9% accuracy tells you what that murmur is. Yeah. The same is going to happen with Echo. So as long as you got it in the right place. Yeah, I've seen these machines that do it now yeah. for you. They'll, yeah. they'll tell you, like you say, if you're in the right place, it'll do the calculations yeah. for you. And so there's not even interpretation anymore yeah. of the the image. It's it's giving it to you, and and that's now. But getting back to what you said, like what, what's, what's going to change in the future, I think with the Pre- Precision Medicine Initiative here in the United States, where we're going to have a huge database of of people, both healthy and unhealthy people that are, that it's supposed to be a million people. They could follow it over the course of their lifetime, and it, and at intervals have bloods drawn as well as when they get sick, they have uh, genetic testing done. We'll know fairly soon, five years, maybe ten years how to treat a specific patient with a specific genotype. Because right now we make no differentiation yep. for genotype. Number one, we make no differentiation of the host genotype. We also make no differentiation of the pathogen genotype. Right. And I think that area is going to explode. Yeah, okay. So um, that's going to be more specific to the patient and yeah. the infection that they've got, even more so than we are now, because we're not very specific no. with our patients. Oh, Certainly, are we? You know, mm-hmm. we try to be a little bit with the infection, with the but only with the antibiotics that exactly. will hopefully kill it, of which we are gradually running out of. Um, so, it's, for me, the key message from what you said to me now is that a nothing much has changed. B, we've got a long way to go, and we still don't know what we're doing. Um, but but for the nurse at the bedside, and again, this is a conversation I had with Eugene, you can assess, a good nurse can assess a septic patient without any machinery at all because they can see that the, the, the patient is clammy, they're tachycardic, they're confused, they might be a little bit breathless. None of that machinery is needed 
in a good nurse's hands, is it, for a patient? Yes, to screen, screen. absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's right, that's exactly Um, right. So, um, and as far as treatment is concerned, we need to be a little bit more careful about the fluids we give, but we don't want to under-resuscitate because that is not going to be good for the patient. Over-resuscitation, not great either, but not such a disaster, generally, unless you're pouring gallons of That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. But and, and then the key is go, it, it should be goal directed. Yes. And you can pick whatever goal you want. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be a specific you know measure or marker. You could use lactate clearance. You could yeah. use SCVO two. You could use a lot of different things. Stroke volume. But pick a goal. Yeah. And don't just indiscriminately give fluid without yeah. having that goal in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's really helpful. Thank Good. you very much. That's interesting discussion. Um, I, I often think to myself, where the hell is sepsis going? Because then you get things like the glycocalyx membrane and you get the starling forces and where's the fluid and third spacing. So it's a huge topic, isn't it? It's very complicated. Oh, well, if you get into the physiology, it's it's a it's an abyss. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to do that now. No. But I think it's important for the bedside nurses to have an appreciation of what they're trying to achieve, which ultimately is end organ perfusion, isn't yeah. it? You know? yep. And if they can understand that, why they're doing it, they'll understand why they're doing what they're doing, and hopefully the patient will benefit as a consequence. Yeah, and, that, that, and that's the common pathway of all patients is that oxygen substrate debt, tissue hypoperfusion, and cell death. That's all patients die that same way. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the one caveat Mike and I talk about is that cell death occurs from different mechanisms and sepsis is probably apoptotic death, which is, you know, it's a pre-programmed cell death. We don't know why that happens. Yeah. And the cell can, it's not death of hypoxia, it's death of apoptosis. Yeah. So something happened that triggered the cell to mm-hmm. die. And that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, we've got to figure that out. <laughs> okay. You let me know when For you another do. day. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank Th- you. That's right, brilliant. Thanks. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.